Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, C.W. Hall. As the Affordable Care Act has gone into greater and greater implementation, it's obviously having a great effect on the way healthcare is delivered and paid for in the United States. One aspect of the ACA that I actually wholeheartedly support centers around precision medicine and preventive health measures. One of those issues centers on pharmacogenomics testing, something I became familiar with more recently, uh, that isn't able to allow a physician to know the genetic information around a patient and how they would process certain medications, uh, potentially helping that doctor to be either able to choose a medication that would be more effective with less risk of addiction, say in the, in the case of pain medicines, or in the case of, say, a cardiology medicine, one that doesn't get activated by the body at all and passes straight through without exerting any effect. The doctor would know that in advance and be able to prescribe a different medication that would be more effective. And today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Dan Roden of Vanderbilt University after going to Vanderbilt to train in clinical pharmacology and cardiology, where he remains today as an attending faculty and a practicing cardiologist. He's been working in his career focused on the study of clinical, genetic, cellular, and molecular basis of arrhythmia susceptibility, as well as variability responses to arrhythmia therapies. And over the past 10 years, he's led Vanderbilt's broader efforts in pharmacogenomics discovery and implementation. In fact, he sits on the steering committee for the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium, a large group of academic institutions, research facilities, and laboratories all contributing to the body of evidence around pharmacogenomics and how it is able to improve patient outcomes and help avoid adverse drug events. He's a very busy man. I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Dan Roden. Thanks so much for making some time. I know you've got a crazy day this morning. My pleasure. For, for the folks out there that aren't familiar with pharmacogenomics or PGX testing, what are we talking about? So there's, there's this, it's well recognized that Patients respond in a variable way to uh, any kind of drug that you give them, whether it's an antiplatelet drug or an anti-cancer drug or, uh, or an anti-depression drug. Uh, and there's been this idea, probably for more than a century, that uh, some of that variability is genetic. But it's only been in the last uh, decade or three uh, that uh, a lot of the genetic basis for variability in drug action has been uh, defined. Uh, and so there are there are some examples where we can uh, point to single genetic variants that are relatively common in the population and that can drive in a major way variability in response to drug action. So the idea has been we spent a lot of time discovering the genetic basis for this variable drug action. Sometimes there are lots of genetic variants, none of which are very, very impactful. Sometimes there's one or two that are, have high impact. And, and, and then the question is, once you know that, how do you apply that to care so that patients can have uh, individualized therapies, either uh, choosing between two drugs or choosing a specific drug and then deciding what dose is right for that particular patient? So that's, that's one idea of PGX testing. Um, the, the, I, I will say that in the um, in contemporary therapeutics, the other the other idea is that when we understand the genetic basis of disease, uh, we can target 
specific therapies to correct the, that genetic basis in a, in a more rational way. So pharmacogenetics has a number of, of aspects to it now. In the cancer space, for example, there's a lot of interest in, in genetic testing of the tumors, and then based on the results of that genetic testing, picking specific therapies. We're not there yet in other kinds of uh, diseases like in cardiovascular disease, but that's, that's one of the hopes as well, that once you define the, 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 the molecular and genetic underpinnings of a disease, you can use pharmacogenetic or genetic testing to choose among drugs. So that's sort of where we are right now. With regards to the efforts of the Clinical Pharmacogenomic Implementations Consortium, or CPEC, what's that all about? From what I understand, there's a good number, over 50 different organizations. Some of them are academics, some of them are laboratory uh, and other research facilities that are talking about practices around pharmacogenomics. What... Talk a little bit about what that organization is all about. I know Vanderbilt is one of the organizations that is a member. And indeed, as I mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, you're actually part of the steering committee for CPIC. That's, that's correct. So CPIC uh, is started out of the Pharmacogenomics Research Network, uh, an NIH-supported uh, network, and uh, uh, has really been driven uh, by uh, uh, investigators at St. Jude Research Children's Hospital, uh, and so that was their their brainchild, and I've been uh, uh, part of a small group of people who have sort of been helping them think about how to, how to do that. They do the they do the heavy lifting. So the idea around CPIC uh, has been the following: that uh, in an in an, there there are two ways to approach genetic testing for drug response. One is I prescribe a drug, I then do a genetic test to see whether the patient is likely to respond in a beneficial or not beneficial way to that drug. Uh, I get the results of the genetic test at some point later. I then adjust the dose of the drug or by choice of the drug. That's one approach. I would call that the, the, the reactive approach or the point-of-care approach. Mm-hmm. CPIC takes another attitude, and CPIC says, if the genetic information is available to the practitioner at the time the drug is prescribed, then here's the way we would approach uh, modu- changing the, the, the choice of drug or the choice of drug dose. So CPIC doesn't, doesn't recommend genetic testing. That's not one of the... Th- we've deliberately, very, very deliberately stayed away from that. But what we've said is, if you happen to have genetic test results available to you and your patient, then here's how you would respond. And I think that that actually makes the, 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 the psychology of using genetic testing quite different. Uh, so, so I'll come back to CPIC in general, but just let me just take a 30-second digression and, 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 and talk a little bit about clopidogrel, Plavix. So uh, there are pretty good data that Plavix is bioactivated to an enzyme called CYP2C19, and there are about 2% of the white population uh, who are homozygous for loss of function alleles in CYP2C19. So the prediction is when they are exposed to clopidogrel, they will not have an antiplatelet effect. And in fact, there's lots and lots of data that supports that idea. Now, it's 2% of the population, and, and, and not everybody who, who, who gets clopidogrel, I mean, if you get clopidogrel after getting a coronary stent, you're not going to live forever. <laughs> and if you fail to get clopidogrel, 
you're not going to die on the spot. So, so, but, but all things being equal, you'd prefer to somebody to have an antiplatelet drug on board than not. So, so there's been this tension in the cardiology community about whether to use genetic testing or not. It's a small group of patients. There's variability in response to clopidogrel, that a lot of which is not genetic or, or not related to that pathway. And so people have argued back and forth. And then we, then we try to set up trials to actually assess whether prospective trials to assess whether people, uh, uh, whether genetic testing ought to be used in this way. And the problem with setting up the trials is you get to the point where people argue over across the table saying, well, would you randomize your mother if you knew that she was one of those 2% of the population? And right. the answer is no. So, so, so you have this tension that doing testing on every single patient who is exposed to clopidogrel as you prescribe the drug seems unjustified in the sense that we don't have outcome data. It's a very small group of patients in whom we're altering the outcome, if that, and, and we need more information. So there's, that's, that's one group of people. On the other hand, there's this sense that if you already knew that somebody was a poor metabolizer, somebody had, uh, you know, was homozygous for these lost functional alleles, you would really think twice or three times about giving them clopidogrel. And you'd sort of say, well, there's enough data that says that that's a useless drug. Let me find a, a different drug. So that's the, the difference between having the data available to you and acting on it versus the record versus the idea of whether you should go and do the testing. So CPIC has taken the attitude that we are entering into an era where lots of patients will have genomic information mm -hmm. on themselves. And we won't think about how that was obtained. But once they have information, how would you act on it? So that's where CPIC comes in and says, if you have this information, this is how we would recommend acting on it. Does that, does that, that, that's, that's the, uh, the fundamental underpinning of the, uh, of the, of, of the recommendations. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are a lot of, so there's a large number of uh, organizations that have been involved in this. And, and then we, we pick, uh, which is to say the, the, the group running CPIC uh, at St. Jude uh, picks drug gene pairs, uh, uh, selects author lists from uh, academic and other centers, uh, and then approaches the, the idea of generating these recommendations in a very kind of systematic way, in the sense that uh, there's always a table that says, you know, if this particular gene, if you get this particular genotype, here is what the consensus recommendation would be. If you get that particular genotype, here's what the consensus recommendation would be. There's a lot of uh, vetting of that information from source uh, publications, and then a lot of vetting of that information once it's been put together by the author list, by the larger group, and by other reviewers. So that, uh, you know, what we want to do is provide a service to the community so that when individual physicians or when hospital systems want to put in place pharmacogenetic testing programs, they at least have some way of looking at the data and saying, well, here's how we should act on those results. Where is PGX or pharmacogenomics testing today in terms of when you look across the healthcare landscape at other hospitals right. and systems out there, what do you see with regards to the extent of its implementation? I mean, you know, are there a lot of hospitals that are doing it or have they I think, tried and then come right. back? Uh, the, uh, um, 
like any other uh, newer kind of approaches, there are early adopters and then there are uh, later adopters. Uh, it's interesting to me that two of the earliest adopters are in the state of Tennessee. Uh, one is, uh, is our program, which I'm happy to talk about in, in a second, and the other is a large program at St. Jude. Um, and there are, uh, when we looked, you know, several years ago, there were sort of half a dozen uh, programs around the country that have adopted this this approach. I think that there, the, those numbers are increasing. I don't think anybody's adopted it and then said, well, we're going to stop doing it because it doesn't seem to be useful. I think that as, as, we, as we become more comfortable as a physician community and as a practitioner community with genetic data being part of the way we make decisions, then, uh, then, then these kinds of programs will assume, uh, you know, a greater role. Uh, I think that you, um, I think you see that in the cancer space a lot, uh, and I, and I think you'll see that in other spaces as well. I think it's been it's been slow because it's cumbersome, uh, and again, the um, I think the right way to do this, uh, and I know about the St. Jude program and the Vanderbilt program. I know there's a program, big program at Mayo Clinic that does this as well. For example, there are programs at the University of Maryland, University of Florida uh, that do this as well, and, and, and other sites. So the notion is um, <clears throat> if you wait around until somebody is prescribed a drug, then you have to get a genetic test, and it takes time for that genetic test result to come back. And then somebody has to interpret the result. Somebody who knows what they're doing has to interpret the result and, and, and adjust the dose of the drug appropriately. Uh, so there are, two, there are a couple of key steps that, that need to be addressed. One is how do, you, how do you get hold of somebody who actually knows what they're doing? And, and I think most places have agreed that um, uh, the data sets that people need to become familiar with are very, very large, like the CPIC uh, publication set, which is now you know, dozens of papers. Um, and so uh, in an era of electronic medical records, it, it becomes uh, more reasonable to develop what we call point-of-care clinical decision support. That is, uh, uh, electronic medical record systems, which when a drug is prescribed, will look at the genetic data set. If the genetics are there and if the genetics show a variant, then the system says, oh, look, this person has a variant. And provides on on the fly on the spot mm -hmm. recommendations for adjusting the dose so so the, the the computer can take over that part as long as the the programming is, is done correctly and there's a lot of uh, interest in 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 creating uh, uniform programs like that but all the programs that I mentioned and many others that I forgot to mention hmm. uh, uh, you know everybody has to sort of develop that kind of clinical decision support and then the other question is do you test for one drug? at a time, or do you identify people who are, you know, likely to expose, be exposed to, to, you know, more than one drug with a pharmacogenetic story, and once you identify those people, test them for many, many pharmacogenetic variants, you know, in, in the same test and stick that information into their electronic medical records. So the St. Jude program, I think, is, the, is, is a great example of that approach. St. Jude is a, is a hospital where the majority of patients are there for relapsed acute childhood leukemia. Um, that's a, a, a pretty serious disease, and when people walk in the door with that diagnosis, uh, the physicians who take care of those patients can, can, in their mind's eye, envision 
the next year of therapy and, and the next dozen drugs that those patients will be exposed to. And some of those drugs have pharmacogenetic stories. So as soon as somebody walks into the door at St. Jude, they have identified themselves as a person who's going to be exposed to many drugs. Some of them have pharmacogenetics. And so they, as a matter of routine, get multiplexed pharmacogenetic testing done on their patients. And that, those data become embedded in the electronic record and, and use when the drugs are prescribed. In general, adult medicine, we, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have that kind of subspecialized care, but we have uh, algorithms that we've put in place at Vanderbilt where we can look, for example, in an internal medicine clinic and say, this person is likely over the next uh, three to five years to be exposed to an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet drug. And then we get what we call multiplex genetic testing that includes uh, genetic variation in many genes some of which have antiplatelet or anticoagulant uh, uh, drugs associated with them. Some of them have other kinds of drugs associated with them. So you can identify groups of patients in whom pharmacogenetic testing might be particularly useful. Eventually, you know, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, we think that everybody will have those that genetic testing as, as part of their sort of routine healthcare, uh, you know, at a relatively early age, have it embedded in their portable electronic record, which then, you know, is accessible to any physician or pharmacist across the country. Uh, that's, a, you know, that sounds like a pipe dream, but there are lots of things. <laughs> I think it's going like there. Dream. I think it's going to go and, there eventually. And, and, and we're, yeah, no, I think, I, I think that's right. I, I think it's, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of issues that you'd like to, um, uh, you'd like to, um, uh, solve in terms of, you know, privacy issues and efficacy issues and how useful this is and how cost effective it is. And all those things will be addressed are being addressed. Talking with Dr. Dan Roden of Vanderbilt University, practicing cardiologist and expert in pharmacogenomics. And we've been talking about just exactly what is pharmacogenomic testing? Why do it? Uh, to what extent have we begun to implement this type of diagnostic study that it's a one-time test, that the data is useful across your lifetime, uh, where there are you know, multiple drugs being affected by these particular metabolic pathways that are guided by, what would you say, Dr. Roden, six or seven, probably on the top, and maybe there's more, but primarily six or seven alleles that we really pay a lot of attention to just because they end up covering the vast majority of medicines that we're giving today? I think that's, I think that's probably about right. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's, I might extend that to a dozen. Sure. There's other uh, ones out but, there. You know, but, one that, but one of the things that the the CPIC group has done is they've sort of we've we've covered the you know the, the common ones and now we're starting to look at an uncommon ones. And you could say, well, that's sort of useless because you know these are pretty rare variants. But um, if once you're going to get tested for ten genes, you know, adding tests for the eleventh gene doesn't cost you know it's, it's basically it doesn't cost anything right. uh, or cost very little. So so once you're you know. Uh, there, there, are, there are genetic variants that occur in you know one in a thousand patients that are associated with very severe uh, adverse drug reactions. Well, uh, you know we don't test those as a matter of routine in every single patient in the hopes of finding sure. you know one person. But it, but it does seem like a bit of a crapshoot when you uh, when you're starting to, uh, to to look at those adverse drug reactions. So you hope that somebody's not going to die from something that was predictable. Let me be specific for a second. There's this disease called malignant hyperthermia, 
a uh, very severe reaction to anesthetic drugs. The genetic basis is relatively well understood. And the only way you get diagnosed is if you get exposed to an anesthetic and you suddenly develop a very, very high temperature <clears throat> and uh, come close to dying or die. Right. Uh, well, you know, that's sort of not, that's probably, you know, that sounds very much like 19th or 20th century medicine. It doesn't sound like 21st century medicine. So, uh, you know, and if you're lucky, if you're really lucky, Maybe uh, your mother had that reaction, and then somebody can actually, you know, uh, test you and, and figure out whether you have this susceptibility or not. But, uh, you know, there's nothing to say that, you know, ultimately we won't all be tested for that as part of getting genetic testing for lots and lots and lots and lots of things at the same time. And then the one in a thousand adverse drug reaction prediction could actually uh, be made. Uh, and so that's, that's the, you're right that we're focusing now on, you know, six to 12 drug gene pairs because the genes that we're interested in are, uh, have variants that are common and important and the drugs that we're interested in are widely used, but there's nothing to prevent us from taking that model to the next step once we have the infrastructure in place to manage it. Yeah, and once the the cost of the of the service comes down, I mean, as as just about everything, oh. new technology comes out and it's very very expensive, right. and then over the years the the cost of it is is diminished. Well, th- there is no better example of that than genetic testing. Uh, you know, the 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 first human genome uh, was announced in in two thousand and uh, it was announced in two thousand uh, and and cost. You can argue about the cost, but it cost somewhere around $3 billion. <laughs> and the estimate was that if you, if you wanted to do a second human genome sequence, right at that time, it would have been $100 million. Because, the, you know, they knew how to do it and yeah. some of the software is in place. And, and actually, over the course of the next five years, the cost came down. The cost co- came down by, by what we call Moore's Law. You know, sort of uh, the cost fell by 50% uh, every 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. And then in 2000, 2005, 2006, uh, new technology to sequence the genome was developed, so-called next-generation uh, sequencing. And uh, the cost for a, a human genome uh, is now around $1,000. Mm-hmm. That's to buy it. Now... That's to buy the human. Yeah, that's so. It's not ten. It's not a hundred million dollars. It's it's a thousand dollars. Now, the 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 you know the facetious way of of, of talking about that is to say, well, uh, it's a thousand dollar genome with a million dollar informatics problem attached to it. That is to say that we get lots and lots of sequence data, most of which we don't understand. Yeah. But. Along the way, if, if the sequence is high enough quality, we, we do get all the pharmacogenetic testing data you might ever want. You get some of the cancer susceptibility information that you might want. You get some of the cardiomyopathy susceptibility information you might want. You get carrier status for diseases like sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis. So there's lots of things that you get. We're, we're very concerned that some of those get overinterpreted. It turns out that there are there are people wandering around who have genetic variation, which if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said, well, that person has to be dead. But in fact, they're wandering around and they're totally healthy. So the genetics are not everything, right. but it is possible now to get a genome and get annotation for, let's say, $10,000. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but that's a one-time 
you know, one-time test. And, you know, an MRI costs, I don't know what an MRI costs. It's an MRI lot. costs a lot of money, and people get them over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, and so, so you know, it, it seems to me that we're entering into an era where, you know, doing a one-time genetic test, archiving the results somewhere, and having them accessible and interpretable is, is in the realm of the doable. And, uh, and how that will play out is something that, you know, we all, we all think it'll be, you know, part of the fabric of the way we deliver healthcare. But there's a lot of things that have to get sorted out in terms of, you know, how to interpret the data, how to store the data, how to keep it private, how to make sure that we don't overinterpret the data, uh, and how to develop this clinical decision support that'll help you know, healthcare providers understand what it is they have and, and how best how best to act on it. Uh, but but I think we're, we're we're getting close to to being able to say to to to, to say that vision with a straight face. And what we're talking about here with regards to the pharmacogenomic testing, you mentioned clopidogrel and 2% of the population that don't activate the medication, basically making it a sugar pill, if you will. What we're talking about is the fact that maybe it's 2%, maybe some other drugs, it's 4 or 5%, but out of 100 people, we're talking about 2 to 4 people. But when those problems happen, they tend to be very expensive. I've, I saw some statistics that said something to the effect that the, the average adverse drug event costs around $20,000. It doesn't take a whole lot of those, especially some of the more severe ones, to far outpace the cost of testing the folks for it. Well, that's, you know, and there's this statistic that says that, you know, uh, uh, adverse reactions to drugs are, you know, uh, depending on who you read, the third or fourth or sixth, uh, leading cause of uh, death in hospital in the United States. Now, not every single adverse drug, re- adverse reaction to a drug, is due to some genetic variation, but some of those are. Yes, uh, and, and some of those are, you know, and many of those are preventable. Uh, you know, some of them are simple medication mistakes or uh, or interactions that weren't recognized. Those kinds of things, but but in fact. Uh, some of them are things that, you know, all those things, all those things are, are, are things that we would like to prevent if, um, if we had the right, uh, informatics systems to support physicians and, and other healthcare providers to, to, to take advantage of genetic data or take advantage of known interactions to, um, uh, to improve the likelihood of a good outcome and decrease the likelihood of a bad outcome to a drug. I know that you're up against your schedule here and have another meeting you have to get to here very quickly. So I just had a couple of quick questions and then we're going to have to have you back on. And there's plenty more to talk about for sure. Uh, on that, on the note of where we were just talking about with regards to, you know, the adverse drug events and the cost of those, as I've talked to healthcare experts of late around this topic, one of the things that we learned is that everybody anecdotally knows, yes, we have adverse drug events. Yes, they're expensive. They cause readmissions. All of those things come in and, and, and impact our uh, evaluation regarding value-based uh, reimbursements and, and things like that. It can have a significant impact on a hospital or a practice's reimbursement rates and their outcomes. Um, but, but the other thing, other thing that I, they said along with that was that it was difficult and, and it was echoed by a large insurance company as well, that it's difficult to track why is this patient being admitted in this moment? It, it, to know whether it was an ADR that led to this event, it's, it's somewhat of a needle in a haystack. And, and, and so with that, knowing that Vanderbilt has 
been working in pharmacogenomics for a minute and they have implemented their PREDICT uh, EMR program that, that includes information about pharmacogenomics data. Have you begun to change the way that you track or try to identify when an adverse drug event is a part of a patient's problem, whether they're an inpatient right now or whether it's bringing them into the office or the ER? Have you begun to be able to see that and, and then know, as we've applied PGX testing across our system, our outcomes have improved and we've seen a, a decrease in ADRs? So um, we've... Uh, when you implement a pharmacogenetic uh, uh, testing program, uh, you know that uses multiplexed pharmacogenetic testing and 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 deployed in large numbers of patients. There are two kinds of outcome questions that you want to answer. Number one is, does the information actually reach healthcare providers, and do they respond to it in in uh, in any kind of way? Do they do they look at the results? Do they change their drug prescribing to, in, in particular instances or not. And, and we have data that, that say that, you know, physicians and, and other healthcare providers do look at information uh, and they do change uh, prescribing, you know, not quite as much as, you know, not 100% of the time, but, uh, but uh, and one of the interesting questions is why not 100%? <laughs> So, so we you know, and there are early adopters within our system, and there are late adopters within our system, and, and there are many reasons why somebody might not, you know, uh, use the genetic information to change prescribing. That's that's. So we have those data now. The actual outcome data in terms of, you know, do we actually re- reduce the number of uh, uh, post stent myocardial infarctions, for example, or to reduce the number of, uh, 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 you know, deaths after. Uh, uh, stenting procedure by using pharmacogenetic data. That is something that we're looking at actively. Uh, there are a little bit of data that were presented in abstract from the University of Florida from a program that they have in relatively small numbers that really looked like the outcomes were, uh, the outcome curve was being bent. bent mm-hmm. uh, and we're working with them now, and uh, we hope to be able to say something uh, important in that space uh, you know, within the next six months. But uh, I so you. I think that we're, you know, we're looking hard and, and, and that's uh, sort of as far as I can go right now. Uh, but it, uh, I think those are very, very important questions and uh, they do need to be addressed. If I'm a healthcare executive, I'm a chief innovations mm-hmm. officer or I'm a chief medical officer or CEO, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. what's, your, what's, your, what's your advice for how do I start? How do I deploy what is there on CPIC? How do I how do I get the ball rolling if we haven't done it yet? Uh, uh, well, I, I think you, you come to a place that's doing it, and I, I mentioned half a dozen places, and, and there are others around the country that are that are you know that are trying to put these programs in place. And you you, you talk to them, you understand the informatics infrastructure, uh, you understand the rules of engagement. One of the rules that we've learned, sort of, I wouldn't say the hard way, but I I think that's probably a reasonable thing to say is that. Um, when you put a program like this in place, you really want to engage the practitioner community so they don't feel like something is being inflicted on them, but actually that they're part of the, uh, the decision-making process in terms of when this will be rolled out, how it will be rolled out, what the supporting infrastructure looks like, you know, who actually, you know, what happens when a genetic test result arrives on a Friday afternoon and a patient who's got stented two days ago mm-hmm. and who's no longer in the hospital. You know, there's all kinds of really interesting, important 
practical operational issues that you want to address. I would love to say that we addressed every single one of those before we put our program in place. That would be a lie. We uh, we learned by doing it, and, uh, and I think we're better at it. And I think every program that's done this has learned sort of as they go. And so there are things that we now know how to do that we didn't know at the beginning. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, as systems uh, learn those things, then it becomes easier for other systems to do. So I think learning by 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 uh, by asking, you know, who else has done it is the is a reasonable way to do it. System wide, you mentioned the other day that uh, you the, the the Vanderbilt had tested around fifteen thousand patients for pharmacogenomics data. Is that a lot? It doesn't sound like a lot over a few I, I, years' period of time when we're talking about these patient yeah, populations. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an interesting question. I, you know, we thought it was a lot. We think it's a lot. It's probably the you know a, lar- a relatively large number. You know, in in you know compared to other you know the size of other programs that have uh, that have started to put these things in place. But but you're right. I mean, eventually we're going to want numbers. You know, in the you know in the six or seven figures, we're going to want you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of patients to be to have been tested. And and then you sort of sit. You know, once you've done the testing, you have to sort of sit back and uh, wait over time to see how often the testing test results are used. And and what you know, and then you have to wait even longer to see whether the test results actually make a difference in terms of uh, in terms of outcomes. Uh, it, this is a, a topic, in my opinion, that is a very important one. Um, I'm I'm very much behind the the concept of it uh, myself. I'm very pleased to have an opportunity through my media channel here to talk about this and begin to get real information out there from real experts such as Dr. Roden here from Vanderbilt University to be able to educate our medical colleagues out there uh, on this useful tool to help uh, improve patient outcomes where it's possible, as well as decreasing overall healthcare expenditures across our uh, healthcare system as a whole. I believe it very, very much that this will have that sort of impact. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to have caught a little bit of your time, Dr. Roden. I, I believe that there is enough to talk about here that if you're willing, I think we should do a series on pharmacogenomics testing and revisit this, uh, maybe adding some other uh, colleagues from around the, the healthcare community sure. who are looking at this and we can put some great information out there that maybe move this along a little bit. I'd, I'd be happy to participate in that. If you're listening to the show today by podcast, if you've not done so already, look in the upper left-hand corner of the show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the podcast and subscribe to us because that way each week when the new episode comes out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen to when it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks because we're really trying to educate the community, both patients as well as healthcare experts on these t- subjects. And we'll say thank you very much in advance for those of you who go to the trouble for that. Dr. Roden, I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. I'll let you get to your next meeting, but we'll circle back and we'll set up a time where we can continue our conversation. That'd be great. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. 